Well, we took, uh, as I mentioned this morning, we took a, a trip this week over spring break to Washington, D.C. Uh, my wife and kids had not been there before, and we wanted them to see the sights and experience um, our nation's capital, uh, appreciate better their freedoms when we visited Arlington National Cemetery. I think they did. I think it was a moving visit. Um, and the reason, I think, for a visit to, to D.C. is pretty obvious. It's not the prettiest city, take away the architecture, just the, the countryside there. It doesn't necessarily have the best restaurants or whatever, although it's got some good ones. Uh, but it's about experiencing the capital of our country, the museums, the history, all of that, and really seeing firsthand locations where very important events happened in our nation's history. Um, now, I don't think 99% of the tourists that go to Washington, D.C., while they're thinking about government, they're not thinking about municipal government. Um, you're not going there to see the sites of the District of Columbia uh, government. Um, it's about the federal government. It's about the nation, right? Um, but something, and this is a small thing, but it really got my attention this week. You see, I remember back when I was out there, I had three internships, late 80s, early 90s, out there over, the, over several summers, and and I just I enjoy those very much, and very small detail. Uh, you know how states have slogans on their license plates? I think we are the Lone Star State, right? Uh, Missouri is the Show Me State. We have our state slogans. Their slogan back in the day for the District of Columbia was, uh, Washington, D.C., a capital city. Fair enough, yeah. Can't argue with that. Well, they've changed that. And all of the license plates I noticed this time, this time it got my attention, my family didn't seem near as interested in it as, as I did. But all of the license plates in D.C., I assume, including the presidential limo and everything, it's a, they, they have the slogan, taxation without representation. Now, you may remember uh, one of the slogans of, uh, of the early days of America and a revolutionary cry against British oppression was, no taxation without representation. That's not what their license plate says. It says, taxation without representation. Um, it is a statement of um, unhappiness that they put on their license plates, that they pay taxes. In fact, I think per capita, the second highest in the country, they pay to the federal government, but they don't have representation. They have a delegate to the Congress who doesn't vote. So they don't actually represent voting members of Congress, um, and they're not happy about that, and they put that on all of their license plates. And in fact, they have in front of their city hall there as we're riding our segways, and it's like, there's the District of Columbia City Hall. Notice the big video screen out there. They have this video screen that just has like, you've seen those things that have the federal debt and how it's accumulating and the numbers are piling on. Well, they've got one that shows, has this rolling number of how much taxes they pay to the federal government while they are not represented. So they're not happy. And I just thought that was interesting. Interesting slogan to put on your state or district license plate, um, more like a bumper sticker, more like a complaint than it is some slogan of pride, but at the same time, they have a point. They have a point. And in a, I guess in a, in a kind of a cool way, it just, where else in America would the capital city um, choose to make some sort of statement of how they're not happy with things? Honestly, um, it made me feel like freedom of expression. Okay, this, that can happen here. But it also, I think, it points to, and this is where we're headed tonight, it points toward this tension, it points toward this conflict, it points toward this um, 
unease um, that exists in countries from the richest and most powerful country in the world to, I'm sure, the poorest country in the world. The reality is that there is this conflict. There is this tension that exists between citizens, between governments, between kingdoms. If you think about it, so the federal government to the state government. I mean, there are people in Texas that still want Texas to, like, secede. I mean, there's that tension. But every state has its tensions with the federal government. And then there's tension between the federal, the state, and the county government. I mean, we read that about that in the news pretty much on a weekly basis. Uh, issues going on with the county government, the commissioner's court here in, in Dallas County, to the city council, um, to your HOA, if you have one of those that you live in. Um, the gripes that we have, the power struggles even within, from the PTA and the HOA all the way up to the United States Senate. Um, with, in terms of governments, in terms of the kingdoms that we support, you know, we pay them money, we pay them taxes, and they're supposed to provide us services and provide for the national defense and build, uh, build highways and stuff like that. Um, and they exercise a certain amount of control. Okay, the city government takes money out of your tax. They get taxes from you and they theoretically not so much in Dallas but theoretically they pave streets not sure about Dallas haven't noticed a lot of paving going on around here um, they control things like the city government controls how fast you drive on municipal streets and and different city ordinances and stuff like that and the state you know how fast you drive on the interstates and the highways and things like that um, and so like with DC and the federal capital, which is just about a mile away from the district capital, there are these constant battles, this jockeying for power and position. And beyond that kind of governance, those kind of kingdom conflicts that occur in the world between cities and nations and states and counties, there is the smallest form of government of all, which is self-government, literally self-government. So I get to, in a free country, I get to control myself. I get to govern myself. I mean, what will I eat? How much will I eat? Will I exercise or will I not exercise? Will I uh, pay my taxes or will I cheat on my taxes? Will I do the right thing or will I do the wrong thing? What, how will I operate in terms of my relationships? I get to govern that stuff. Um, I, I exercise a certain dominion over my own life. And I think even, in turn, even when you get down to the smallest unit, my, let's call it self-governance, you see the problems. You see how fraught it is with difficulty. I can't even control myself. We struggle to control our appetites. We struggle to, to corral our lives and lead them in one consistent direction, whether it's with relationships that we value or work or whatever. We struggle. Diets, exercise, financial discipline, all that, ha handling habits and addictions, all of that stuff. The truth is that there are all of these kingdoms, if you will, bigger and, and smaller that are struggling with each other, that are vying for reign, for dominion. And this gets us to the Lord's Prayer tonight. Because inner peace, which I think is something that everybody wants, 
Inner peace can only come when I discover that my life and my world only make sense when they come under the reign of God, when they come under the dominion of God. Tonight, Jesus prays, Thy kingdom come. And it's a prayer that invites God to govern not only in the universe, not only in the affairs of men, but in, in my life, in, in here as well. Um, behind it, I think, behind this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is this recognition that what I need, what we need more than anything else is the reign of God. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Here's the prayer. We've been starting each week with the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, once again, here's that phrase, the call for governance. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would call this praying for rain, right? R-E-I-G-N, praying for rain, asking for God's reign, for God's dominion to come. And so... This phrase, kingdom of God, is a phrase that you see over 60 times in the New Testament, mostly in the Gospels, over 60 times. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom. John the Baptist, before Jesus, constantly talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Um, So it was a big deal, big deal to John, very big deal to Jesus. Therefore, if he's our Lord, um, it should be a big deal to us the kingdom of God. It's a big deal for me. It's a big deal for us because we sense, I think it's fair to say, we sense that the world is not as it should be. Things are not as they, are, are not as they ought to be, and we know they're not as they could be. And that's very frustrating. They could be better. There could be more justice, a lot more justice, There could be more equality, a lot more equality. Um, There could be more love and concern shown for those who who are on the margins. There could be a lot more of that shown. We know that we see that, and so it should be a big deal to us. It was a big deal, certainly, um, to Jesus. We see daily, almost, the fatal flaw in human reign, whether it's our inability to govern our own lives or or go to Washington or wherever you want to go. We see the, the... the bumbling inability of people to reign. Um, And so the kingdom of God is important to believers um, who recognize the lordship and authority of Jesus. The kingdom of God, as we noticed, it was noted, it was also a really big deal to Jesus. It was a central theme of his ministry and his teaching. He was constantly talking about it. In fact, just in those 40 days, remember, from the time he is... He's crucified, but then the 40 days between the time he is resurrected and the time he ascends to heaven, he's not just wandering around for those 40 days. He is doing some concentrated teaching and training, and the main 
a centerpiece of that teaching and training is the kingdom. Luke notes in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he appeared to them, to those disciples, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So even after the resurrection, or even more so after the resurrection, in those weeks he has with his, his inner circle before he ascends to heaven, it's the kingdom, the kingdom. Let me tell you about the kingdom. So praying for rain, seeking God's reign, that is a fundamental of faith for Jesus and for us as well. So naturally, we come to the question, what is it? <laughs> what does that look like? What is the kingdom of God. Thankfully, Jesus really basically answers that question in the prayer itself. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is that place or that heart or that family or that church. The kingdom of God is that place where the will of God is done. Um, it is obviously not a kingdom that is concerned with license plate slogans, not concerned with taxation or elections or speed limits. Um, in a nutshell, the kingdom of God is the dominion, the governance of God, the place where His will is being done. Um, that's it. And the context of this prayer, the reign of God is that place where the fatherhood of God is recognized and appreciated and embraced. It is that place where the name of God is, a, is exalted as it should be. It is elevated. It is hallowed as it should be. It's a place where the Lord is trusted to provide for our daily bread, our daily needs. I recognize that whatever I have, whatever I enjoy, it's because God allows me to enjoy that. God allows me to have that. It's a place where forgiveness flows from God and from me to the people who have offended me, who have disappointed me. Forgiveness is flowing in that place where God reigns. Um, so now... We come to this point that's very important. Before we can really pray for rain, or at least do it sincerely, we kind of have to come to terms with those other kingdoms, if you will, that are in conflict, that are struggling for power in our lives, the other agendas that we tend to push for, that we tend to seek. And if we don't recognize those, how can we wholeheartedly seek His governance in our life, His kingdom to come in our life? Um, how can we do that when we can't even see the other ones that are trying to usurp or trying to take His place? So the truth is, for all of us, at times, instead of seeking first my kingdom, my righteousness, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, we spend a lot of time trying to foist our agendas on the Lord or trying to bring the Lord into our cause or our agenda or our point of view, trying to 
scour the scriptures or figure out arguments why God is in favor of our position on X, Y, or Z, from grandiose things to very small and personal, uh, petty types of things, um, somehow trying to endorse our agenda, our worldview, or our particular desire at a moment uh, to endorse that with God somehow. Um, now, what are these agendas? They're pretty easy. I don't think no, nothing here is going to really surprise you because they really haven't changed very much in the last 2,000 years. They haven't changed much at all. Uh, for starters, and this seems appropriate in 2016, this is a presidential year. We only get one of these every four years. Um, presidential year. Um, how about political agendas, right? Um, how about political agendas that we find ourselves committed to or interested in or supporting? Um, those are at play, and those can compete with seeking first the kingdom of God. Um, it was true in the first century. It's always a little safer when we can remove ourselves you know, directly from the, from the spotlight and say, well, let's talk about the ministry of Jesus, and we can do that here. Because those were at play with people that were coming to Jesus, leaving. They were always coming, trying to get Jesus to, to kind of side up with them and, and leverage him in, in some sort of promotion or endorsement of their cause. Um, I mean, this was one, so you had these camps, and it probably wasn't just the Pharisees in this case, but certainly one group were the Herodians. They supported Herod, more generally, that meant they supported Roman rule. They were very comfortable with Roman rule and the, the puppets that Rome set up, like King Herod. Then there were Pharisees and others and zealots over here who were very much opposed to Roman rule. In fact, isn't that opposed to the kingdom of God? Isn't that opposed to the agenda of God, to being God's people? that we would support this pagan oppressive government, the government of Rome. And so they actually came to Jesus, these two sides, wanting him to weigh in on this. Who's right? Are the Herodians right? Are the Pharisees right? Um, and Jesus, ah, so wise. And in fact, oftentimes I would say cunning. Jesus says, hey, you over there, and this was one of the anti-Herodians, by the way, one of those who thought, We'd, we don't owe anything to Rome. Uh, we, shouldn't, we, we, we should work against Rome. He said, hey, you over there, can I, can I borrow a coin? Do you have a coin I can borrow? Sure. Give it to Jesus. Jesus holds it up, and you remember this. He says, so whose picture is on, who, whose image is born on the face of this coin and, you know, several people in the audience, I'm sure, well, it's Caesar, right? I mean, it's Caesar. That's his image on the coin. And what a brilliant answer. What a cunning answer there. Um, and then he says, of course, should you pay taxes? That was their question. That was the way they were trying to get him to side up. Do we pay taxes to support Rome or not? He said, we'll give to Caesar. What's Caesar's? Looks like it's Caesar's to me. Give to God what is God's. And so Jesus would not be drawn off sides by their political cause, by their political debates amongst themselves. Each side wanted him to be drawn into supporting their cause, but he wouldn't do it. 
And Jesus seems to imply, of course, we're going a little bit beyond the text here. Let's get that, make, get that out there. But he seems to imply, because the image is Caesar's on the coin, um, that it, in some sense, belonged to him, that uh, by implication, shouldn't you be paying your taxes? Um, doesn't Rome, despite the fact that it's a pagan government, does a lot of really bad stuff, don't they also provide some services here? Haven't they paved your street? Aren't they taking care of certain things here? And he doesn't make an explicit statement, but he certainly seems to imply that, that they need to pay their taxes to Rome. Um, even though the government is alien, even though the government is pagan, um, they have certain obligations. Um, what's clear is that, so back to the main message here, what's clear from this interchange and others like it is that the Lord did not have this kind of political agenda um, that he wasn't and this was to their shock and amazement Jesus wasn't interested in the overthrow of the Roman Empire they couldn't believe it what in fact there were groups that wanted to make him Caesar wanted to make him king and he would have none of it and many of them were shocked I mean all of this power the miracles the wisdom and you won't stand up to Rome? Not my fight. Not my cause. Not my agenda. And for us, I think, and this is where it gets a little trickier, right? I think it means putting, uh, it means putting the kingdom of God first. Um, and that doesn't mean refusing to pay my taxes here. <laughs> uh, while I may not agree with all that my secular government does... Um, certainly the Jews did in the first century. I do have some obligations uh, because I'm a citizen of this country. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, and I'm sure you have your own stories and your own experiences that are very much like this one. But I have had people tell me, I don't see how you can be a Christian and vote for Obama. I've had people tell me that. I've had people more re recently tell me, I don't see how you can be a Christian and support Donald Trump. Of course, in our movement in the Church of Christ, there were those that said, I don't see how you can be a Christian and vote at all. Look that up. We're citizens of a higher kingdom. We shouldn't vote. Um, it's not to say that these causes and our ideas and our, our desires to see... A, a better government or, or this, uh, this social issue or other issue addressed uh, in a way that we think would be, would be best, that, the, that, those are not that those don't matter, uh, those concerns are not of, of any importance, but they do tell us that Jesus is not so much interested in our political causes. And we need to be, when we pray for rain, I think we're recognizing that we need to be careful that we're not trying to pull Jesus into our kingdom, into our agenda, but we're looking to align ourselves with him and his agenda. Um, because certainly in the first century, he wasn't having any of that wearing their button or, or their T-shirt or putting their bumper sticker on the back of, of his. By the way, he rode a donkey. Yeah? Think about what that might be. So clearly, lots of lots of political issues and causes people try to draw God into or use 
um, to support their cause, but there are also theological causes. Clearly, there are those that people for the last 2,000 years have been trying to get Jesus to sign on with. Uh, remember, the, back to the Pharisees, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you may remember from, from Sunday school, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in heaven. It's true, they didn't believe in heaven. Well, it was bigger than that. Um, they were moralists. They believed uh, the Bible, the Scriptures, lots of good stuff in there, lots of good ethics, um, a good life philosophy in there, but not real big on um, miracles and resurrections, eternal life philosophy. They were not big on that. They were big on good principles in Scripture. The Pharisees were, no, no, no. The Bible speaks clearly of these miraculous things that happened. And even in the Old Testament, there are some references, albeit some kind of veiled, to a resurrection uh, after death. And so they come to Jesus, and uh, they want uh, Jesus to pick a side. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Pharisees considered Jesus to be liberal. He was a liberal. I didn't take take Sabbath all that seriously. Like his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat lunch on the Sabbath. They're picking grain, and he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Look at how liberal that group is. Um, The Sadducees thought he was way too conservative because... He talked openly about resurrection, so each of them, they're trying to figure out how they can line this powerful, popular rabbi up with with their side. He's one of us, and Jesus would have none of that. Um, Interesting, the story is really pretty funny. Um, So, using the very law of Moses that the Pharisees loved so much and knew like the back of their hands, using that very law, the Sadducees had an argument. They, they had no doubt used this over and over and over again because it was almost a lock um, to put the Pharisees in an unwinnable position with respect to everlasting life, resurrection from the dead. And so here's their, here's their little thing that they did. In this bizarre, really bizarre scenario, the Sadducees painted for Jesus... It's a hypothetical. Um, This woman gets married. Her husband drops dead before they can have a child together. And so, very importantly, according to the law of Moses, his brother, the, the deceased man's brother, needs to take responsibility and marry her. So she marries his brother. He dies without producing an heir. This goes on in their story. This goes on over and over and over again until she plows through all seven brothers. They've all been her husband at one point or another. Finally, and they all die without giving her a child. Finally, she dies, perhaps from exhaustion, from all of that marrying, you know. Uh, And the question the Sadducees ask is this. This is the gotcha moment. So, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They, of course, don't believe there's a resurrection, and they think that this shows the absurdity of the whole idea. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, this can be kind of tender and difficult for 
us, who we love our spouses, or we love our spouses who've already passed on. Um, but Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Um, he says there's not marriage in heaven. Um, one of the reasons he gives is that we will be like the angels. Um, the focus in eternity is not going to be on marriage. It's not going to be on procreation. It's not going to be on choosing the right college for your kids. It's not going to be on are we going to file joint or, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, those are not issues in heaven. The issue in heaven is going to not be about our earthly families, but is going to be on living out our identity as children of our Father. We don't need to get into all of that tonight. The point is, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things we can talk about there, but the point is, as they're trying to draw Jesus into this issue, is what they really want is for Jesus to side with them on their theological, doctrinal, religious debates, Um, not just with politics, but with religion. Um, So there are certainly truths, certainly truths, a lot of truths being taught by Jesus about doctrine, about religion, but he does not want to be a pawn in their in the jockeying of these different groups who are vying for power and control and vying to be proved right over the other group or the opposing viewpoint. Um, Because those things don't serve the kingdom agenda, the bigger agenda. Now, finally, there were, and obviously, there still are, we know this from our personal experiences, personal agendas, our own agendas, that are also in the middle of all of this, vying for power, vying for control or dominion, reign. And these can challenge the reign of God in our lives as well. So personal agendas. Um, and lots of examples in the gospel of people come, gospels of people coming to Jesus with not political or theological, but very personal agendas. Um, in Luke chapter 12, a man comes to Jesus and says, my father died... My brother is not giving me my fair share of the inheritance. I want my money. Jesus, set him straight. <laughs> and Jesus says, who, once again, who appointed me judge here? I'm, and he begins, he doesn't ever answer that. He doesn't, wait, he doesn't choose a side there. He doesn't stand up for this guy's personal agenda. But he does give people a lesson about greed about humility, about how the scoreboard of life is not based on how much money you accrue for yourself. Matthew chapter 20, James and John. <laughs> this, is, this is also one of those. It just kind of makes you smile when you read this story. James and John want power. They know that Jesus is somebody with a capital S. They know that the future is going to be in his hands. And they want to be his first and second lieutenant. Not those other apostles. The sons of Zebedee, James and John. What's funny about Matthew 20 is they actually send their mom to kind of try to... They know Jesus, you know, he'll probably rebuff them, you know, sharply. But what if they send their mom... Right? He'll be nice to her. So they send their mom to Jesus to ask this favor to make them, to give them the left and the right seats beside Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. Um, they want to be his wingmen. 
And Jesus won't be drawn into this very shallow, very selfish, um, personal desire for advancement kind of thing that's going on with these sons of Zebedee. Instead, he turns to the whole group because he knows they all struggle with this. It's not just James and John. He turns to the whole group and he says, you know, in my kingdom it's different. It's not about lording power and authority. The greatest will be the least. The greatest will be the slave, he says. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Here's the, here's the thing. Um, over and over again, Jesus declines to become involved in our personal agendas. Although he recognizes our needs and he cares very much about those needs, he won't be tied up in my agenda, political, theological, or personal He knows better than we do what we really need. And it's not necessarily, this is the thing, this is hard for us, it's not necessarily what we think we need greatest of all. Because what I need, what you need, what we need more than anything else, what every single person in the world needs more than anything is for God to reign. For God to have dominion, for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we need most, to reign not just in the world out there, but in the world in here. So, when that's what, I, when that's what I'm about as a disciple, first... And foremost, the reign of God, thy kingdom come. That's my prayer. Then the chaos out there, the chaos in here, the lack of inner peace, the confusion, um, the needs, the, the grabbing, the, the desire for power, all of that stuff gets all of that stuff gets worked out when I want his kingdom above all else. When I prioritize the reign of God in my life. When that prayer is on my lips, when that cry is in my heart, thy kingdom come, everything else comes into balance. In fact, Jesus said a chapter earlier, or no, not not a chapter earlier, the same chapter, right, as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the same chapter, Matthew 6, verse 33, he said, but seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And all of these things, the material things, will be given to you as well. And I like the way the New Living translates that, so let me read this from the New Living. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So I have this tendency, I think we have this tendency, a very human tendency, to come to the Lord with my agenda, with our agendas, and ask God to sign on, to bless that, to wear my button for my cause, to become a flag bearer for my agenda, uh, my smaller kingdom. What does he do when when I come to him with that? How does he respond to that? Well, in humility... 
He loves me enough to engage me where I'm at. He engages all of those people that come to him with these crazy requests and different causes. But at the same time, he won't join my cause. He won't sign up for my agenda. Now, our ideas, our concepts, our ideas about what needs to happen, our concepts about this is right, this is wrong, they're just too small, I think. People so often think that the solutions to our problems are, they are theological. Just need to get this group over here to come into line and to agree with me and see things my way. Or the solutions to our problems, they are political. We, just, we need to elect this candidate or, or this party, make sure that they come into power. Or, or the solutions to what we face, it is personal. It is about imposing what I think needs to happen on, on my sphere of influence. That's what needs to happen. When really, this prayer reminds me, really, Jesus knows <laughs> that what I need more than anything else is to be drawn into this kingdom that is larger and greater than my own. The kingdom of God, thy kingdom come. A place where I seek his kingdom, an eternal kingdom above all else. A kingdom that isn't created through taxation that isn't about politics, that isn't about slogans on bumpers or on license plates, but it is a kingdom that is forged by the king who wore a crown of thorns. A kingdom that ultimately triumphs not through military force, ingenious laws, but through the power of the cross and through the glorious resurrection of that king who reigns over life and death. And may our prayer and may the desire of our hearts always be first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Thy kingdom come. Let's pray that as we stand together, as we worship together.